This is Ayla podcast. Hello and welcome to This is Ayla. I'm Jolian Thurgood. Only a few days have passed since our last episode, but we wanted to bring you our latest interviews as soon as possible. This episode is for tea drinkers and music lovers, but as always, it's for listeners with an interest in the people, places, and events connected to Isla. This time, we'll get an update from the Cantalina Festival, the Chamber Music Festival, which has been part of the Isla calendar for the past 20 years, and which this year is moving online for the first time. We'll also hear from Les Wilson of Port Charlotte, whose book, Putting the Tea in Britain, lays out the role of various Scots in establishing the global tea trade, and in particular, making tea a national drink in Britain and elsewhere. First of all, I'd like to welcome Angus Ramsey. Angus is one of two co-artistic directors with the Cantalina Festival. Angus was involved from the beginning, co-founding the festival together with Adrian Shepherd and Scott Mitchell back in 2000. Angus, thank you for joining me today. I'm sure many people on Isla are looking forward to this year's event, but since 21 years have passed since the first Cantalina event on Isla, I thought we would look back. What do you recall about the origin of the festival and how it was first received? A very, very interesting question, I have to say. Yeah, we, we got together, when I say we, myself, Scott Mitchell and Adrian Shepherd um, started the festival in the year 2000. In fact, our very first festival wasn't until July 2001, but we did what we call a recce in the September of the 2000. I rem distinctly remember it. The weather was absolutely appalling as it has been over the past day or so in Edinburgh. Torrential rain, but we, we enjoyed ourselves. Three days we were out there, met up with whomever we thought was going to, going to be the appropriate person or people to talk to. Isla was chosen by us because Isla, my family has a long history with Isla and on Isla dating back you know, hundreds of years. And I still had part of the family was staying in Port Charlotte up until uh, the end of last century. In fact, one of my uh, great uncles, he, if I got this right, he still was manager down at Ardbeg Distillery. I think that's quite right, in the, in the 70s of last century. Um, but we started off and we got to know through, cut a long story short, we got to know the Friedrichs at Isla House. And we went to visit them on this one of the September evenings, had a nip of whiskey, a bit of shortbread. And Kathleen was so gregarious and wanted her house opened up to the, to the island so that people could come in and obviously um, pay their respects to the to, 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 to the to the house itself, but also uh, to, to Kathleen and Tom, who who possibly felt they weren't quite as integrated into the island as they had envisaged or had wanted. Um, anyway, uh, we decided we would attend the festival three days, over three days in the following July. This was towards the end of 2020. The following July, 2021, we brought over, uh, the start of the whole process was bringing over a young student, uh, who played the viola. So we had then a piano trio as we were going over, but also a piano um, quartet. Uh, and this young lady played, uh, uh, I think it was a Brahms viola 
uh, sonata and we played some Beethoven, um, probably some Mozart or Haydn and so on in the music room and on the piano that the Friedrichs owned. Uh, and I distinctly remember <clears throat> that the start of this festival, we were nervous, not because of our playing, but we were we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know whether anybody would come. We had timed the concert for eight o'clock, first concert, and we sat there, we practiced during the day, and we sat there half past seven, 20 to eight, quarter to eight, thought, oh gosh, nobody's coming. And suddenly, it was just a cavalcade of cars came up the driveway, and the, the, the small room was full. I think it took about 50-odd people, 60 people, and it was absolutely full, and we felt really, really vindicated that we had done the right thing in for A, choosing Isla, but also to go over the three of us as co-artistic directors of the festival. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. They just took off from there. Your audiences on Isla usually see you only one week a year, but all of you are busy year round. You do have day jobs. You've been teaching at the Conservatoire for many years, and they're also principal second violinists with the Scottish Opera Orchestra. How do you make time for Cantalina? Um, well, interesting. I mean, because we only latterly, I have to say, I'll just come on to that in a second, uh, because we, we only see our audiences once a, a year for a, a week at a time. It gives us a kind of, if you like, 51 weeks of a lead into it, which it's not because we don't actually start. We, we, we kind of drained after the week, but we, we allow ourselves several weeks to do nothing. And then we, you know, the artistic directors have always been in the process of dialogue and, and thinking what would make a, either a theme or which kind of way would we go in the following year? Would it be more students? Would, it, would we, uh, or young professionals as we like to call them, or would we invite some uh, young wind players so that we can elaborate even more on, on, on the repertoire that we play? But I have to say that, that generally speaking, yes, but we have, we did spend about four or five years in the mid zeros, 2000 zero something or other, um, we did come over twice to the island. We spent the Easter weekend on the island and we spent the, the first week of July on the island. One year when we were doing the ring cycle, we changed it all around and we did the main festival at Easter and a very small visit in the summer. Um, one of the years I particularly remember when we did a small uh, tour over to the island was we, we played in a three days, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, we did all the original Beethoven piano trios paired up with Haydn or Stroke and Mozart. So it, um, and it all had its place, uh, you, you know, with Mozart, of course, the, you know, the Mozart, but then of course, um, Haydn being Beethoven's teacher and just the way it, it kind of happened that, uh, how the orchestration of, or even the piano trio changed somewhat um, over that period from, from Haydn uh, and then through to Beethoven and Beethoven just, just, just took it that step further, you know, with, uh, with, his, with his colours that he could get out of just those three instruments. But um, yeah, it, it, it is, yeah, it, it is a, a, a quite a task doing a, a different programme every night over the, the, the week of the festival. There was no 2020 Cantalina Festival on Isla, 
but you're back this year with a virtual concert planned for July the 9th. To fill us in, here's an update you recorded a few days ago at the Conservatoire in Glasgow. Let's listen. Hello, I'm Angus Ramsey, one of the artistic directors of the Cantalena Festival on Isla. This past year has been a very difficult year for the festival and for everyone. We had hoped, of course, last year and this year to come over to Isla to give you your festival, but because of COVID and pandemic, we weren't able. But we've met here at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and we've put on many rehearsals in the hope of giving you an online virtual festival. This past year has seen many changes at the festival, the most important of which, after 20 years of loyal and dedicated service, Scott Mitchell has decided to leave as artistic director. I was very, very fortunate in being able to secure the services of a totally outstanding musician to take over from Scott for the post of co-artistic director. Alan Neve is Professor of Guitar and Harp at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Angus contacted me when Scott decided to move on and I uh, jumped at the opportunity. I've been to the festival a few years ago and was lucky enough to perform live in the venues, which was fantastic. We want to talk to you today about what we're actually doing this year because the, the festival is going to go completely online and we have been rehearsing here in the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and putting together a programme that we hope you'll enjoy. Angus is going to talk a bit more about the pieces that we're going to present. We're going to play you music by Vivaldi, Bach, Leclerc, Beethoven, Mozart. I think those are the, the main ones. Yeah. There yeah. might be one or two other things um, that, that we'll present to you as we go through the, the virtual festival. Now, the one thing I wanted to talk about was that the, the, the remit, if you like, of the festival is to bring on young students through to being young professionals, if you like. Um, this year is going to be a little bit different because we haven't got a fully blown sort of string ensemble, but we do have one violinist and one cellist, young professionals, who will be presented to you throughout the, the virtual festival as well. Apart from the music, of course, I have vivid memories of the individual venues, being squeezed into the old Kiln Cafe at Ardbeg, or drinks provided by the host venue or sponsor and also wonderful prizes provided by sponsors at raffles at each and every concert. I know that Rona Faulkner, Martin Noe, and Michael Donnelly are the current directors of Cantalina, so people on Isla and elsewhere are at work behind the scenes, including Lauren McCormack and others around the country. Cantalina relies on charitable donations and support from others, so how can people best support Cantalina? Well, uh, can I come on to that just in a second? I want to just um, take you through some of, of how we built Cantalena to where it is. Uh, we, have, we started with three artistic directors. Apart from myself, we had Scott Mitchell and we had Adrian Shepard. Now, Adrian was a really, really big name, not only in the musical sense, but in, in, in the procurement of funds for the festival. He was fantastic at approaching people and talking to people and, and getting on side with them. Um, he, he, he unfortunately passed away 
I think it was 2012, uh, and he his funeral was 2013. I think he he became ill, I should say, and and he he his last festival they appeared that was either 2011 or 2012, and 2014 we dedicated that festival to his name. Uh, since then, we've operated just with Scott Mitchell and myself. Scott decided he wanted to leave the festival for personal reasons, for his own reasons. And that was when we were able to, to secure uh, Alan, Alan Neve as my co-artistic director. But um, the, 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 the best way that I think we can, people can support us and is basically uh, showing an interest in the music that we develop and we play, showing uh, an empathy with the ethos of the festival, which is which is interesting and and, and worthy of of mention. Uh, we, for me, it is two basically twofold. It um, and has the added advantage of ending up as performances and therefore uh, playing to our, our public, Isla public or visitors to the island. But um, we we you sort of touched on it a minute ago in, in reference to myself with the RCS and, and Scottish Opera. Make, eking out a living in music is, is not an easy thing to do. You have to build different sort of outlets and have your antennae working and so on. Um, so this was an opportunity, as Adrian, dear old Adrian said at the time, we drive to Kennecraig we leave our egos on the mainland, get on the boat, over to Isla, we make music together. We're not, we're not a, a, a teaching uh, course. We're just making music, professionals and young professionals together. Um, hopefully the young professionals can gain from the advice that, that we share with them, but we also gain from the, the youthful and you know, exuberance of these of these young people coming over to the island. So it's a two-way street, really. But it's it's as much in a way about us as um, professionals benefiting from a in a, in a in a one sense a relaxed week on the island, in another sense, as I've already said, not relaxed. Um, but it's a different kind of operating when when you're when you're working towards concerts and so in your own sphere. Uh, at your own pace. Um, and it's as much about giving professionals the, the scope to, to re, rekindle their love of playing, if you like, uh, rather than just being in an organisation where you are, yeah, we all enjoy it, but, but the, there are complete deadlines that we have no say over that you have to adhere to. So, um, yes, visitors can uh, support us by coming to the to, to, to the festival and supporting us in whichever way, such as buying a season ticket, donating to the festival, um, participating in, in, in the, the other extras, such as the raffle and so on. So I think that's the way we can. And, and of course, this week would be great if people could support us by tuning in to the, this premiere that we're hoping to, that we are going to release on Friday. As you mentioned, the students are a key element of, of Cantalina. And over the years, I know Isla audiences have appreciated the, the extremely talented 
young professionals just beginning their careers. Here is one of this year's students, Tessa Henderson, to introduce herself. Hello, my name is Tessa Henderson and I am a recent graduate of the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Uh, I graduated last year, but due to COVID, I was unable to graduate in person. And so it's so wonderful to be part of the Isla Music Festival, which is happening virtually this year. Uh, I'm delighted to be playing with Nick Ashton, and we will be performing the first movement of Beethoven's Violin Sonata in C minor. I hope you enjoy it. To close this interview, we're going to listen to a brand new performance from the 2021 Cantalina Festival Players. What are we going to hear? Well, we, we spent uh, the last weekend recording, one, the last weekend of June, recording a number of pieces. Um, and from that, uh, we will hear just now the slow movement of the Vivaldi Guitar Concerto with Alan Neve and uh, five other members of the group.
Thanks for your time today, Angus. I'm looking forward to Friday's concert. The 2021 Cantalina Festival will premiere on Friday, July the 9th on YouTube's Cantalina channel. To find it, simply go to YouTube and search for Cantalina Festival on Isla. You can also follow at Cantalina Festival on Facebook. And don't worry, if July 9th has passed, you've not missed it. The concert will still be available online. Next, fill up your cup and sit back. We're going to hear from Les Wilson, author of Putting the Tea in Britain, the Scots who made our national drink. I'm lucky enough to be here with Les Wilson, and we're here to talk about his latest book, Putting the Tea in Britain. But I'm going to let Les first talk about some of the other uh, works that he's well known for. Well, I'm a documentary maker by trade, so I'm always sticking my nose into other people's business and having been paid for it. Um, and um, writing books was really a kind of continuation of that sort of work. Um, the first Isla book I was involved in, it was with my wife Jenny Minto, was Isla Voices, which was an anthology of writing about Isla with some uh, contextualising material in between. And that was a fascinating way to look at the history of Isla, to see what people had written through the ages, I mean, from early medieval times right up to, 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 to modern times, material that had, for instance, been published in the Ilich. Um, and of course, living in Isla, which I've done for 10 years, and uh, working on uh, Isla Voices, I was very aware of the events in 1918, the sinking of the Tuscania and the Otranto. And I thought this was just a extraordinary story. Um, and I began to dig into it a bit more. Um, and I <coughs> decided, <coughs> excuse me, and I decided to write a book about it, which was my second Isla book, if you like, and it was called The Drowned and the Saved. It came out just in time for the 2018 centenary of World War I and the sinking of these two vessels. And um, it did, I think, very well. And um, it was well-reviewed and won the Saltire Award for History Book of the Year, which was considering that basically I have a, an, a, an O grade in history as my only academic qualification in history wasn't a bad result. Um, I then began to think of other ideas and I worked on a couple of other things, some television programs and a, a, an unpublished novel. But um, I've always had a love of India and a number of years ago, Jenny and I were in India, in Darjeeling, um, and this is a part of India that her family has a connection with. Uh, her father's cousin was the last European in charge of Dr. Graham's home in Kalampong, which had been started about 1900 by a Church of Scotland minister who had um, started a home for the children um, of, of Scottish planters by native women. Uh, in other words, mixed-race kids, often unwanted kids. And he started a home for them, which is now actually a rather exclusive public school. So we went to see this. And the main town closest to this um, is Darjeeling. And we, we loved Darjeeling so much, we went a second time. And to my astonishment, I found that the man who first planted tea in Darjeeling, and Darjeeling tea is the champagne of world teas, but the man who first planted it, who pioneered tea growing there, came from Isla. His name was Archibald Campbell, and he was a third son of Campbell of Ardmore. Um, now, Campbell of Ardmore 
having uh, having a number of sons, Archibald being the third, well, his father had an heir and a spear, he had to get a proper job. So he, he was a bright boy. He had a good parish education on Isla. He would have been bilingual, Gallic and English. He would have had Latin and possibly Greek from the local school. And he went and became a doctor, graduating at uh, Edinburgh University. And like many doctors, because Scotland was overproducing doctors, he ended up in India, working with the East India Company. And they had an army bigger than the British army. And as Scottish doctors were trained in surgery, as well as medicine, which was not the case in England, uh, Scottish doctors were very good if you wanted to have people treated for, for instance, gunshot wounds. Um, as well as malaria. So Scots doctors were very, very popular. And because they were all using drugs based on, on herbs and vegetables, all, all botanicals, um, they were very, very keen botanists. And their interests in botany and science, generally natural science, was very wide. And Archibald Campbell had a fascination for botany. And he piled up with Joseph Hooker, who was a a botanist on an expedition into the Himalayas. His father was the director of Kew Gardens. Both had been raised in Scotland, Campbell and, and Hooker. And they went off to Tibet together. Um, well, they went off to Sikkim together and strayed into Tibet and were arrested, um, beaten up, tortured. Um, Campbell was threatened with execution. It's a real, this is not really academic history. This is boy's own adventure. Mm -hmm. So I thought this was an extraordinary story. Um, so I came back determined to find out more about Campbell and to find more about tea. And then I found out that um, there were many, many Scottish pioneers of the tea industry, including the extraordinary Robert Fortune, who was a son of an agricultural worker from the borders. But again, a bright boy. He became an apprentice at the Royal Botanical Gardens in Edinburgh, ended up in London and was sent to China on a plant hunting expedition. He was so successful that he was sent a second time, but the second time with a secret mission, which was to smuggle quality tea plants out of China because the Chinese had the monopoly on tea and all the tea that we got in Britain came from China and they wanted silver for it. They didn't want any of our manufactured goods. They wanted silver. And Britain was very kind of worried about losing all its bullion. So it was decided, it, it, what it did is it traded opium for, for tea illegally. The opium was sold to Chinese drug dealers for silver, and then the silver paid for tea. And this was the cause of two wars, the opium wars in the 19th century with China, um, which clearly was not a great way of going about business. So Britain decided, look, we've got a great empire. Why don't we just steal tea plants and the technology and the know-how and we'll find a place in the empire to grow tea. And that's what Robert Fortune was sent to do. And at one point, he sent um, little uh, greenhouses on the decks of ships with other plants in them, but which, in which he had scattered tea seeds, uh, illegally, of course, because he wasn't supposed to export these. Uh, and when they arrived in Calcutta, the botanical gardens there, run by another Scot, they had all sprouted. He had 12,000 little tea plants. And these went all over India, looking for places that would actually grow fine tea. And one of the raw materials that we were particularly fond of was tea. Um, and in fact, there was two more Scots come into the scene, the, the Bruce brothers. 
Um, and they were real kind of uh, Joseph Conrad or Robert Louis Stevenson adventurists. And they were, one of them was exploring in the jungles of the Brahmaputra up in Assam. Now, Assam was part of the empire, but unfortunately, it wasn't part of our empire. It was part of the Burmese empire. Um, so the East India Company sorted that out by basically invading Assam and then invading the rest of Burma. But when it was part of Burma, one of the Bruce brothers was in the jungle trading with a, with a, with a, a native tribe. And he noticed they were eating what looked like tea leaves as a vegetable and drinking the liquor. And they showed him the trees that they had gathered these leaves from. And they were 30 or 40 feet high. And now everyone knew that tea plants were just small that little Chinese ladies could, could pluck, lean over and pluck. But Bruce was convinced that this was wild tea um, and brought samples back to his, to, to his, own, his own garden. Um, he unfortunately died, but his brother Charles was also convinced and he worked very hard to convince the scientific establishment that this was native tea. And so it was probably the tea that the Chinese had started cultivating centuries earlier. So the two great teas of India, Darjeeling and Assam, were directly Scottish discoveries or inventions. Um, so it, um, it's an extraordinary story because India wasn't really a tea drinking nation and basically until the Scots discovered it on their own doorstep. And when, give me a sense of when this was happening. This was in the 17th No, this is, this, this is in the 1800s. This, this is in the, this is in the in, in early the, 19th century. Robert Fortune was born in 1812. So he was, um, and he went really to uh, China in the 1840s, 1843 and 48, uh, second time after the Opium Wars. Um, and um, Archibald Campbell, he was born in 1805, and it was 1849 that he went into Sikkim with Joseph Hooker and, and, and got himself into all that trouble. But Fortune got, got himself in trouble in China as well. I mean, he, if he had been found out, he would probably have been executed, beheaded, um, because Europeans were only allowed in five ports. They weren't allowed into the hinterland at all, and Fortune went into the hinterland using rivers and canals um, and hiring a boat and disguised himself as a Chinaman. He came from the Scottish borders <laughs> and somehow he got off with disguising himself as a Chinaman. He even bought a pigtail which he had woven into his own hair and dressed as a Mandarin. And he spoke Chinese, not fluently, but his, his servant would tell people who were curious about him, that he was a Mandarin from north of the wall, which was why he looked it and sounded a bit different from them. But largely he got off with posing as a Chinaman. It's quite extraordinary. So it took a lot of initiative. <laughs> a lot of initiative and a lot of courage as well. In one occasion, he was on a junk going from one port to the other, um, and the junk was attacked by pirates. And he realised that the pirates would rob the Chinese people on board, but they would probably kill him because if he reported their activities, the British would send some gunboats to sort them out. So he realised the only way he could survive was by fighting off these pirates. And none of the crew wanted to assist. And Fortune, fortunately, had a couple of guns, a double barrel gun, it may have been a shotgun, and a pistol. And he managed to actually fight off these pirates who, although they had small cannon, were actually using spears and didn't have muskets or rifles. So he was able to fight them off. 
So I mean, an extra, I mean, extraordinary man. He should have he should have died that day, but you know, he was just he was a tough border Scot. He just knew how to look after himself. And from these early days, uh, did the same people were they still involved when the business was growing, when the demand for for tea was growing and. Well, a kind of in new breed of people came in. The planters came in, and they were an interesting lot because they often came. Often, one member of a family would go, and there would be a kind of kin chain migration. Um, there's one incident I quote in a book about a man writing in the 30s. He was working for a tea company in India, and they were looking for managers and under managers. And he wrote back that one new recruit he had got was very good. But couldn't you have got a Scot? Uh, <laughs> uh, so Scots were, they were hardy, they were ambitious. Um, their country was a bit poorer than the, the, than the south of England, and therefore they were probably a bit, bit just harder working. And of course, this, this tradition of your, your sending, sending for your nephews or your sons or your, grand, your, 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 your grandsons and bringing them out to India... Um, you know, became a very established tradition, and there was a. I mean, if you go to Darjeeling, go into the church, it looks like a Scottish church. It's a Presbyterian church. Um, there's masses of of memorials to people with Scots names who were tea planters there. So it's and that, and and that's fact in in um, Darjeeling area where there's eighty or ninety tea estates that are there's a good dozen or so with Scottish names, including Bannockburn. You couldn't get more Scottish name <laughs> than that. Um, and, of course, what happened then was that Scots were in other parts of the empire. And there was, um, in Ceylon, or now, now, now Sri Lanka, um, they, were, um, they were coffee planters. Um, and the, a chap called James Taylor um, was from Lawrence Kirk area. He went out there in the late 1800s and as a coffee planter and as an assistant, and then he got a, a plantation to manage. But he was a very interesting guy. He was very curious about lots of stuff, and he didn't know something. He would get a book about it and read about it. So if he needed to build a bridge or a road, he would buy a book about it, and he would then build the bridge or the road. And he got a book on tea planting. So he decided to experiment with tea tea and he, he planted about 19 acres of tea at which point a fungal disease attacked the coffee crop of Sri Lanka and over about 20 years it totally destroyed the coffee crop. It went from valley to valley to valley year on year on year rather like a, a, a similar fungal disease killed the wines in, the, in France in the 19th century and this destroyed uh, Ceylon's uh, greatest econo economic uh, virtue, you know, its its greatest resource. But Taylor was there saying, look, I've planted teas. Now, the fields are all cultivated, the roads are built, the bungalows are built, the factories are built. Dig out your dead coffee plants and plant, plant tea. And he became the pioneer of, of tea in Ceylon. And, and, and today, Sri Lanka's biggest export, I think, is tea. tea. So in Glasgow, there was a, there was a, a very, very energetic uh, grocer called Thomas Lipton. Um, he was a Gorbals boy, and he was building up a chain 
of, of, of grocery stores around Scotland and further in, in, in England as well. And he was the master of the stack em high, sell em cheap uh, kind of method of, sell, of selling things. And he realised if he could get a really reliable supply of tea in quantity, he could sell it to ordinary people, to working class people. Um, and he saw the, the new tea estates being established in Ceylon as being a huge opportunity. And he went out and he actually bought quite a number of them. So between Taylor um, uh, and the Glasgow grocer, the, 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 the pioneer planter and the, Gla the Glasgow grocer, uh, they were able to, to flood Scotland and Britain with tea from Ceylon and at a reasonable price. And it's really then that tea becomes a drink of the masses, that everyone, you know, everyone had a nice cup of tea during the Blitz, you know, during the First World War and so on. A cup of tea was, was, was something at the but end presumably, of the But presumably from mid-Victorian times, it was first the status uh, Indeed, you could aspire to when you bought it at first in the in the, in the 1600s, and in Scotland, the first place you could buy it was from a goldsmith's in Edinburgh. That's how valuable tea was because they had the weights. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they grow. you never you didn't get one leaf of tea more than you paid for, <laughs> and it was very expensive. So it was it was really the royal court that started there, and then the aristocracy followed, and then it, it, it trickled down mm -hmm. or percolated down through society um, and became, you know, the, the every drink of, of, of almost everybody. So I'm, I'm wondering, you, you wrote this, this book very recently. Are the themes, uh, especially when you th think of the themes of empire and global trade and uh, especially two or three hundred years ago, themes that you were able to write about in a way that probably 10 or 20 years ago you wouldn't have? Well, one of the things that people have done in the last 10 or 20 years is look at Scottish history and, and to see its involvement in some of the darker forces of empire, including slavery. Now, um, tea was never uh, a crop that was harvested by slaves, although it was harvested by indentured uh, workers, um, and they had a pretty rough time of it. Um, and. Um, they were transported throughout India into places that they had no connection with. They had very little in the way of, of rights. They were uh, prone to exploitation, in, in, including in some cases sexual, sexual exploitation. Um, so um, Scotland's hands is not entirely clean when it comes to, to, to the tea industry, even though, as I said, it wasn't like the tobacco or the cotton industry in the Americas. It wasn't actually... Uh, slavery, but in actual fact, um, uh, the life of an indentured tea plucker was a, was a pretty unpleasant life and often a very short life. But then it was short for the, for the Europeans too. I mean, we went to, we went to the Garrison Cemetery in Candy in, 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 in Ceylon and very, very few of the people buried there, Europeans buried there, lived to the, over the age of 40. And mostly they were killed by disease. One or two were killed by snakes, um, by, by, by leopards, by stampeding uh, elephants, in one case by a cricket ball. Um, but, but many, many, many were killed by the by diseases and sometimes only, only got there and lasted weeks. 
before they got a fatal disease and, and died. No. So it was, a, it was a hazardous business being, being a planter um, in these days. I was going through the, the archives of James Finlay's, which was a, a, a Scottish company, a Glasgow-based company. They'd started off with cotton mills, and then they had got their cotton, raw cotton from the Americas. When the Civil War happened, the cotton dried up, so they went to India to look for raw cotton. And when they were in India, they got the tea bug, and they started buying plantations, became a major tea company. James Finlay's is still going, it's part of a conglomerate, but it's still going as a, as, a, as, a, as a corporate entity. And I was going through their archive, which is in Glasgow University Business Archives now, and it was the end of the day and I was getting a bit fed up and I had this huge book in front of me, which was all handwritten, and it was reports year on year on the behaviour of managers and under-managers in their estates. And they would say, this manager is very good, or this manager's got a bit of a drink problem, or this manager is, is a bit lazy, and this manager has, you know, you know, has all sorts of problems, or this manager is really good and deserves promotion. And I, I had been looking at a lot of this stuff and noting a lot of this stuff down. And then I kind of flicked to the end, and I saw the story, unfortunately, Mr. Strachan has had be, to be returned home to the UK um, after his terrible injuries. So I thought, I wonder what these were. So just out of curiosity, I flipped back a few pages and found that Mr. Strachan had an arm and a leg below the knee amputated. Uh, and then I flipped back a few more pages and I found that Mr. Strachan had been mauled by a tiger. Now, um, I know that we live in a very health and uh, safety conscious, you know, um, world today, um, but not many of us in our daily lives have the threat of being mauled by a tiger. So, but this was this did happen, you know. And, and a couple of years ago, there was a there were elephants stampeding through tea estates in Assam, um, and destroying crops and the houses of the of the of the tea the tea workers there. Although in that case, no one was killed. But I mean, if you get stomped on by an elephant, you know, you probably don't get up again. We were talking earlier about working with your editors. I'm wondering how the editors have been receiving, uh, if they're happy with what they've received. I was very pleased with this book. It, it was delayed by a year because of COVID and they thought because bookshops weren't opening and so on, um, that, that it would be, it would, it would be, it would be hard to find a public. Um, and they had previously um, postponed it by six months because they had read the text and thought, we want to do something with this. Because my previous book, The Drowned of the Saved, had come out immediately in paperback. But they saw the tea book and said, we want to make something of this, with photographs, with graphic design, with a terrific cover. Um, and so I was, I think they were fairly pleased with that. It's had a couple of great reviews, one in The Scotsman, one in The Herald. So I think, you know, I think the publishers, my editors are... I think happy. <laughs> it seems to me just the recipe for these times: a good cup of tea, and a good read. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. What else? What else? You know, in a, at the end of a long day, a cup of tea and a good read is a good way to end a day. Exactly. Well, thank you, Les. Uh, it's been very interesting, and I look forward. to I have to admit that I have not read the book yet. Uh, I'm assuming that there are copies available at Rise. Well, um, I saw Pat had a big pile. He asked me to sign quite a number of them. 
um, and I dare say if they're selling, um, he'll, he will not be slow to order some more. And you don't have to pay extra for the signature. No, no, no. It's, uh, maybe I have, I, many years ago I did publish a novel and um, I think it's the rare unsigned copies that I would be the collectors of. Well, thank you again, Les. It's been very entertaining uh, and I do look forward to, to reading the book. A pleasure. Putting the Tea in Britain, the Scots who made our national drink, was published by Berlin in June and is available at Roy's in Beaumont and at many booksellers nationally. That's all we have time for in this episode. Many thanks to Angus Ramsey, the Cantalina Festival players, and to Les Wilson for their contributions this time. If you have a story to tell or would like to join the team at This Is Isla, please get in touch by email at thisisisla at gmail.com. Follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter at This Is Isla, and on Instagram at This Is Isla Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for joining us. Goodbye. I'm Sharon McCarry. You've been listening to This Is Isla, the people, places, events and connections of Isla and Jura. And we invite you to join us again next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Is Isla Podcast. Our theme song is Swift Pound Cashback by Facebook.